come tonight to one of the most seminal figures in Christian history who absolutely transformed Christendom as we know it today. And we're in this room gathered in a constitutional republic, gathered in a nation that understands religious freedom, religious liberty, simply because of the work of this one Augustinian monk. What he did was so revolutionary, it changed the entire world as we know it. And actually, this is the, what, 500th anniversary of of what he did. Um, Well, this is the guy, Martin Luther. Martin Luther. He was an Augustinian monk, Catholic. Uh, Actually uh, wanted to be an attorney. Well, his dad wanted him to be an attorney. He wasn't a pauper. He was born into a middle income, maybe upper income uh, mining family. His dad wasn't a mine worker. He owned the mine. Uh, And he had access to a good education, which he did receive. And um, I have some aspects of his history. He he ended up receiving a, a bachelor's of arts degree in 1502. In 1505, he earned a master's of arts while studying law. But on that same year in 1502, uh, July 2nd, he, he's struggling over this calling and, and he, his parents are Christian. And at the time, the theology in, in the Christian world was God is capricious and you need to, to, to line up and do what's right. And you earn his favor by do's and don'ts. By observing the law, God gives you favor. And, and, um, the alchemy of this, this idea of how that transpired was this transition. They had moved away from Augustinian thought and a number of other things. And so it was a works-based mindset. And here's, here's the kicker. All the governments in the world were monarchies or oligarchies. Do you remember our study on this? Stay with me. Cause if you fall asleep, you need to leave. I'm more tired than you are. So they were mostly oligarchies, monarchies. And as a result, what happened is they started to establish a biblical doctrine on trying to keep the subjects subjects and the kings kings. So what's the best way to do that? Obligation to a deity or obligation to a king. So if the scriptures declare it of its adherence and they can they can align that theology that God is only happy with you when you're doing what he wants you to do. And you only find favor with God when you're doing what he wants you to do. And the only way you find salvation is to do what he wants you to do. That translates very nicely to a king who tells his subjects to do what they're supposed to do. And everyone becomes lemmings. The problem is the scriptures don't say that. But the problem then was nobody could read. According to scripture, where does faith come from? Faith comes by and hearing from the... So you have to know how to read if you're going to gain faith, unless someone else is going to tell you. And we know what happens with interpreters. I experienced it today. I'm not sure that everything I said translated, he did his best, but it gets convoluted like the game telephone, right? And then you have papal authority and, and, and the establishment of the papal authority is they're building their own kingdom and they hold the seat of government, which God never intended the church to hold the sword. So here they have a seat of government in Rome. It's been the transition of the Roman Empire. Now they have a seat, they hold this seat of government, and they're building a palatial structure. Have you ever been to St. Peter's Basilica? Have you ever been to Rome? It's magnificent. And the amount of money that went to build that is astronomical. How are they going to pay for it? They do a little thing called selling indulgences. When the coffers ring from Purgatory of Soul Springs, 
And the idea is you buy your relatives out of purgatory. You, 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 can, you can purchase their salvation and the Pope gives that permission to happen. And, and all of this was aligned in such a way as to cause people to give to an organization and to keep this monarchy rolling, whether it be a Christian monarchy or however you want to design it. It's the suppression of the freedom of man and the way God intended us to live. Well, he's part of this. And in 1502... He's searching for faith. He's trying to figure out what to do. He gets caught in a thunderstorm that scares the, the living daylights out of him. And at that moment in the thunderstorm, and you can see this, he, he cries out to God and he vows to become a monk and he enters into the Augustinian order. And then in 1507, he's ordained. And in 1509, he becomes a bachelor of the Bible, reading the Bible. And 1510, he visits Rome. 1511, he's transferred to the August, uh, Augustinian house at Wittenberg. And there in 1512, he receives his doctorate in theology, and he begins lecturing on the Psalms. He's a brilliant mind. He's a humble monk. He's not how some stories depict him as this hardcore guy. He just simply is reading the scriptures and realizing this is not what we're teaching the parishioners. And it starts to grieve him. And he is a man that is so committed to his faith after that experience in, in, in July 2nd, 1502. He's so committed that this is the structure theologically that you're supposed to honor God or he's going to strike you. And, and he is a righteous God and, and you have to stand and, and walk in that righteousness. And he is so burdened that he is telling the, the, his superior as he's confessing his sins, he's going, the, his superior saying to him, I can't remember his name. It's like... Kalsfed, or I can't remember, but he, his superior says to him, listen, pick some good sins. These are ridiculous. I don't need to sit through this. Pick some doozies. Just really give me something that you can confess because this, but, but Luther was so burdened by righteousness that every little detail he was plagued by. I can't obtain this. I can't understand what you want from me, God. And it was driving him crazy. And, and as he starts to go through the scriptures, he comes to this place as he's lecturing through the, the, the book of, on Romans, and he's overseeing these 10 monasteries in 1515. And as he's lecturing through Romans and also through Galatians, and in 1517, he goes through Hebrews, all of a sudden, everything just starts clicking. And I want to share with you the one verse that absolutely transformed him. And this is Romans 117, if you have a Bible, open up to it. It says, for in it, meaning in the scriptures, all right, for in it, meaning in the scriptures, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just, the justified shall live by faith. So what is righteousness? Righteousness is right standing with God. Has anyone today done anything that will take you out of your right standing with God Please raise your hand. Come on. Seriously, raise it. We all have, right? And if you doubt that, I can take you to Romans 3 for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. <laughs> and as he reads this, he says, For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. He, he's, he's struggling with this. What, 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 and he begins to say, what does God provide? And, and how is it that the just shall live by faith? What is this just? And what is this faith? And as I, I was considering these concepts of faith, 
I, uh, I liked what I, I read here. Um, let me see if I can find it. I'll, I'll get to it in a second. Look at, look at Romans 3.28. We're going to take a look at a few more. Romans 3.28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So his mindset was, wait a minute, I was trying to observe the law in order to be righteous. But apparently I'm justified apart from my deeds. I'm justified by what? This is revolutionary. And you'll see in a moment how it affected the Western world. Go to Romans chapter four, verse two. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And then Romans 5, 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're justified by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He got to Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Galatians 2.21. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Do you understand that? We just celebrated Resurrection Sunday. Why did he have to be crucified? For our sins, he paid the penalty. It's paid for to telestai. It is finished, or better yet in the Greek, paid in full. It's covered. If it isn't, he died in vain. If you still have to earn God's favor, his death on the cross was a waste of time. I didn't say that, the scriptures did. Galatians uh, 3.24. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Every time you all raise your hand, everyone's broken the law today. Law of God, law of man, law of whatever. Just give me a law, law of your spouse. Whatever it is, you've broken it. Law of your parents. And you broke that law. And what does that do? That makes you realize, I can't do this. So it drives you to a God who can do it for you. And he reestablishes his relationship because he paid for your penalties. He covered it. He puts his righteousness on your account. Turn with me to... uh, Philippians chapter 3. It says, And be found in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Now you think, oh, these are all New Testament. Okay, I'll read this to you. Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham believed in the Lord, and God accounted it to him for righteousness. Habakkuk 2.4, behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. So much so that, that the author of Hebrews would requote Habakkuk 2.4, now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then I've got a couple more out of Romans. I'll read these to you. Romans 4, 5 says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. 
Romans 3, 23 and 24, in case any of you think that this doesn't apply to you, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then finally, Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth and the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I am looking at that verse and I am thinking, where are the indulgences? Where are the works? I, aren't I supposed to like hit myself with a whip or crawl over broken glass or say Hail Marys or, 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 or how am I saved? By faith. What is faith? Taking God at his word. Taking God at his word. What's his word? Christ has paid the penalty for your sins. Would you like to receive this gift for the forgiveness of your sins and have Christ's righteousness put on your account so that the debt is cleared and your standing with God is established? Not by any works, so you get no glory. God says, I want to give this to you. I am the giver of life. I'm the giver of mercy. I'm the giver of grace. I'm the giver of justice. And I want to freely give this to you. Would you like to receive it? And the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth, Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. They go, wow, that's amazing. So easy. It's a lot easier than this. I can't think of a bigger stick to hit somebody over the head with than God if you want to milk people for money. Right? And, and the church have figured out how to build beautiful buildings and that's where we are nowadays. This is another picture of the selling of the indulgences. This is the buildings that were built in the 1530 depiction of the selling of indulgences. But here is the concept of justification by faith. Uh, the source of our justification is God and his grace. The basis of our justification is Christ and his cross. The means of our justification is faith, not works. And God's redemption, God's propitiation, and God's demonstration. So God and his grace is the source of our justification. Now, here's, here's a simple term of justification. Real simple. Just as if I never sinned. I, I don't know about you, but that, that's very comforting. Could you imagine how comforting it was to, to Luther? Just as if I'd never sinned. You have guilt? You have shame before God. It's he, if you receive by faith his forgiveness, freely he gives, so freely you receive. You receive it, it's paid in full, no debt. Has anyone ever had an enormous debt that somebody paid for? Some of you are going, well, I, I do now, but I wish someone would. Are you <laughs> open to that? Well, if you're a believer, you have an enormous debt paid for. We couldn't have paid a thousand lifetimes. One sin is, is death. We, we don't have that ability. 
Here's another picture of justification. Jesus Christ dies on the cross because the, the penalty for sin, the penalty, what ha- the, this, you, you did the crime, you got to pay the time, and the time is death. It's a capital punishment. And so Christ dies. His righteousness is put on your account, and our guilt is credited to Jesus on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin. That the righteousness of, of God will be made manifest. Now, I want to show you this picture um, because what happened after this is that it stripped the church of its political power in many regards. Uh, Luther would go on to write a book called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, and he sought the abolition of the papal court where they were using power to control people And he saw in the scriptures, especially when he would read in Galatians, stand fast therefore in the liberty for which Christ has set you free. And he started to understand the priesthood of man, that that we don't need an intercessor. We don't need a papal authority. We can have a direct line and communication with Christ. And it's, 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 it's the individual priesthood. Before the Lord, we come before him and we give an accounting of our life. And we talk to God. And we have that relationship. And um, God is honored. Listen to this. God is honored when he is the giver. The Bible says that God is a debtor to no man. Now, a lot of you struggled, and I, rightfully so, because I don't know that I did a very good depiction of it, but a lot of you struggle when I said, the Lord is our employee and he is our boss. Do you remember that? The concept is simply this. He's still God. He's still in control. But he is glorified when he is the giver. Does that make better sense to you? God is glorified when he's the giver. Why are you here tonight? God has given you life. Why do we have the guilt removed? God has given you forgiveness. God has justified you. How can we have peace with one another? Because we have peace with him. Where did that come from? God gave it to us. What are you going to eat tonight? Who gave that to you? Who do we give thanks to? God. What is our work? It is a worship of God. He gave us the ability to produce and to create and, and, and to bless others and to mimic that. And all of a sudden, this whole concept of God being the giver instead of the one requiring you with indulgences and and you've got to sweep the factory floor and you've got to keep the gears moving and the plates spinning and you better do what you're told and shut up and like it. The entire mindset of God and man is switched under Martin Luther. And it changes not only Western thought, but Western government. It has a, a, a social impact, an economic impact, a political impact, and a religious impact all in one man. And the the simple idea that God is honored when he is the giver. You see, only faith lets God be God. I'll give you an example. We're saved by grace through faith, not of works. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Yes? Yes? Not of works. But there are denominations that require that if you're going to be saved, you have to be baptized. Was the thief on the cross baptized? Today you'll be with me in. Let God be God. 
I, I have no bearing in my salvation other than I receive a free gift from one who's giving and I'm letting God be God. And what is God? Gracious, patient, long-suffering, wanting that none would perish, but all would be saved. He loves his creation so much that he left the glory of heaven's throne for the humiliation of earthly cross. He wanted to have a relationship, a relationship of love where it's not mandatory, but it's it, instead of obligation, it's adoration. And he wants this relationship and God has saved me. I didn't save myself. And how did God save me? He freely gave the, the, the penalty. He paid the penalty freely for what I did. And he died in my place. And the judge says, you're free to go. And you say, I don't want to go. I don't want him to pay my penalty. I'll face it on my own. And that is rejection. You understand that? It's offered to you, but you can deny it. It's offered to you, but you can deny it. But when you receive it, God is God. And he is glorified when he's the giver. And he loves to give to his children. He loves to bless them. So the question then becomes, and this is what changes the economy, this is what changes the social status, and this is what changes politics in the Western world. If, if God is glorified when he's the giver, then why do I do good works? Anybody? What happens when you receive God's forgiveness? What happens when you receive God's forgiveness? You're transformed. You're a new creature in Christ. The old passes away, the new comes. What happens to our inner man? It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. He takes over. All of a sudden, we're baptized in his love. We have this ability to say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? As we've been forgiven, so we forgive one another. The Sermon on the Mount takes on a whole new meaning. Community starts to develop. Relationships are healed, yes? And why do we do good works? It's simply the the fact that we've been filled with the love of God. And we're doing it out of adoration, not out of obligation. We're, We're doing it out of a joy. We want others to experience what we ourselves have come to just so deeply appreciate And these are three things about Luther's teachings on faith. And then I'm going to tie it in. Watch this. Luther's teachings. He rejected the idea that priests and the clergy had special power. All Christians had equal access to God through faith in the Bible. And Luther translated the Bible into the German vernacular so that ordinary people could study it by themselves. It revolutionized Western thought. The Geneva Bible, all these other things come out of it. And all of a sudden they start looking at civil government. They start saying, how do we, how do we operate together as we're baptized in love, wanting to do good for one another because God is glorified when he's giving. And so is his, are, are his children when we're giving blessed. It's more blessed to than to. And all of a sudden everything takes on a new meaning. That's just not some street urchin. That's a human being created in the image of God. That's no longer a blob of tissue in a, in a womb. It's a baby. All of a sudden, your heart is moved. It's no longer about you. 
And you're realizing this is a dash and I'm going to be standing in eternity with a God that loved me this much. I want to make as big a difference on that, on this earth while I'm here. And it transforms Western thought. And then this three powers of faith. One, it makes works unnecessary. It makes works unnecessary. And if you think about that, Christ is, is the one who secured it. So faith is taking God at his word. We don't, have to, we don't have to earn it. He gives it to us. We just receive it. And how is God glorified? When he's the giver. How is God glorified? And so it makes works unnecessary. Two, it honors God properly. He's God. And I'm taking him at his word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing from the word of God. But this is the kicker. This is the big one. The power of faith is that it unites the soul with Christ. What happens in marriage? It says, a man will leave his father and mother and be cleaved to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. flesh. (laughs) Michelle and I are married. We're one flesh. Now she's sitting over there and I'm standing over here. But everything I own is hers. And everything she owns is her, I mean, is, is mine. <laughs> it's, it's ours. We're inseparable. We're in union. What that means is our soul is united with Christ. That means all of his love all of his goodness, all of his patience, all of those virtues that we so adore about the Lord, he gives to us freely if we simply ask. How do you receive those gifts? You ask. How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to him who asks? And this idea of baptizing in in his love, baptizing in his grace, whatever that is, God, you love to give because it glorifies you. And I want to be united with you. I want my soul to be yours. I want your purposes to be mine. I mean, I want your soul to be mine. I want your purposes to be mine. God, help me. Help me, Lord. And what happens is, when we all of a sudden receive this bountiful blessing from the Lord, our cup overflows. And what does that do to mankind? The relationship is no longer dealing with a capricious God who's telling us to sweep the factory floor, but a God who is glorified when he's the giver. And he loves to do that to his people because faith causes our soul to be united with Christ. Let the mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you. And the two will become one. I no longer live, it's Christ who lives in me. I can represent my wife better than anyone in this room, including her parents. And that's not an insult to them. I've just been with her for the last 28 years closer. Now they had her for 20, more, more than half. I got her. I got it down. And I know how she feels about you guys. She adores you. But do you understand the two become one? And so what happens to a community? What happens to a government? What happens to an economy? What happens to our entertainment? What happens? 
Now, let me tell you how you can dismantle salvation by grace through faith. Don't allow God to cause you to be the giver by his spirit. Just be the taker and make it all about you. Receive, but certainly don't give. What does the Lord love? A taker or a cheerful giver? Not stubborn giver. I'm, I, I got to do 10% because that's the law and I'm going to... No, just cheerful. It's, it's, it's your character. It's who you are. It's who you are. I, I, I went to the Waypoint Cafe today I, uh, and, and I was there yes, yesterday or day before. And I sat down and the owner came up or said hello. And, and, uh, and as we were leaving, you know, we said goodbye. And, uh, and I get a text saying, you're never to pay when you're here. Oh, that's really sweet, you know, but I, no big deal. I went back today. He wasn't there, but every one of the wait staff is like, you cannot pay. I'm in trouble if you pay. And I'm, I'm with four other people and I'm saying, no, 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 no. It's a, no, no, no. You don't understand. You can't pay. And, and I said, you know, um, I don't want to get you in trouble. And they do that. And I said, you know what? I'll only do it on one condition. They said, what's I said, you, you at least allow me to buy one thing. What? An iced tea. Okay. And so at the end of the meal, they comped it. And I said, I need an iced tea. And they gave me an iced tea. And I gave a $50 tip on the iced tea. <laughs> the idea is we're God's people. I, I, I am grateful to receive, and I want you to be blessed when you give. But in the same regard, I want to be just like Christ. I want to I have his heart. God is glorified when he gives. I want to represent him well.